Bible and turn to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. just one paragraph from chapter 1 and then also a paragraph from chapter 3 that both essentially deal with the same subject. Philippians chapter 1 is on page 980 in these pew Bibles, beginning in verse 27. Hear God's word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and I hear that I still have. You keep your finger there, but turn over to chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating, in imitating me and keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you now, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That ends the reading of God's word. I want to talk today for a few moments from these passages about what it means to be dual citizens. Citizenship in the United States is a status that entails many rights, many privileges, and many duties. There are two primary sources of citizenship. There's birthright citizenship, in which a person is presumed to be a citizen, provided that he's born within the territory of the U.S., and then there's naturalization, uh, which is a process in which an immigrant applies for citizenship and is accepted. All that's in the 14th Amendment. U.S. law allows for multiple citizenship, and that it in that way, a citizen from another country can be naturalized as a U.S. citizen and may retain their previous citizenship, though they must renounce uh, allegiance to that other country. And so a U.S. citizen retains U.S. citizenship when they become a citizen of another country, should that country's laws allow it. And a lot of countries do. A small list, France, Greece, Israel, Colombia, Costa Rica, Jamaica, Iran, there are many that allow dual citizenship. So what is dual citizenship in the scriptures? Because that term is used here twice. We are citizens of heaven. As believers, we not only have a national citizenship, and most, for most of us that would be here in the U.S., but we also have a heavenly citizenship. We are citizens of heaven. Now when the Apostle Paul wrote this, it was 61 A.D., he was the missionary, the greatest missionary that's ever lived, church planter, evangelist. He's in prison in the city of Rome when he writes these words. He doesn't know if he'll be released or not. He doesn't know whether he'll be executed in prison. 
He ultimately was released uh, for a while and later was re-imprisoned and executed. But when he wrote this, it would not be his final letter. And he's writing to the Christians who lived in the city of Philippi. It was a long way from Rome. But what's interesting about Philippi, not only that it was named after Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great, but it was a Roman colony. And so the people who lived there had Roman legal privileges. They dressed like Romans. They lived like they were in the city of Rome, even though that was far away. So if you were a citizen in Philippi, you had certain unique rights and privileges. You were proud of that citizenship, and you would have been quick to tell strangers that's where you were from. That's what it was like to be a citizen in Philippi. And so it was a a mindset beyond just the clothes, beyond just the customs. Uh, It was its laws. It was a part of your being. You had been proud of all of that. Now, God had used Paul, the Apostle Paul, to bring the gospel to the city about ten years before this letter was written. The two initial converts that were given their names, well, one name, one was Lydia, who was a businesswoman in Philippi, and then there was the unnamed uh, jailer there uh, that both of these people professed faith in Christ along with their households. So in verse 27 of chapter 1, When he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, What he uses there, only let your manner of life be worthy, uh, is talking there about behaving as a citizen uh, in your manner of life. We tend today, especially younger people, when they hear that term worthy, there's a negative reaction saying, wait, that sounds like that's opposed to grace, that sounds like we're worthy in some way that we earn God's favor, that we work for or fulfill certain duties, and therefore God loves us. That's not what's being suggested here at all. If you are new to reading the Bible, if you are here today and this stuff all sounds pretty confusing and it looks like a very big book written by a bunch of different people in in different places and over a long period of time, you can reduce it down to basically two simple statements. Okay, the, the Christian message from the scriptures is essentially two statements. The first statement is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the gift of forgiveness. That's the first basic truth. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the gift of forgiveness for sins. The second, to those who have believed and have received that gift and are saved, is live a life worthy of the gospel. That's essentially it. If you boil it down to two statements, that's it. Essentially, the New Testament is telling us how to live a life worthy of the gospel. Now, it's very important. You've got to get those two statements in that order. First, you receive the gift of eternal life, forgiveness of sins, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all first. Secondly, then, live a life worthy of the gospel. You cannot live a life worthy of the gospel if you have not believed the message about Jesus and received him for forgiveness of sins. The order is critical. We live from life, not to life. Our life for God is a gift returned for his far greater gift given to us. So how do we walk worthy? If that's the admonition here, in this passage, it mentions several things. Right off the bat, he says, live steadfast. I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. 
So we are to stand firm, to be steadfast in our commitment to him. We're not to be moved away from our commitment to the gospel. And then he describes what that steadfastness is founded on. First, it's based on unity. If there's a oneness of spirit, there's a oneness of mind, there's a oneness of purpose. They have experienced a new birth. And so there's unity. Then there's a oneness of mind. They believe the same truths. And there's oneness of purpose. They're striving together for the faith of the gospel. The picture there is striving side by side. It's that of an athletic team or either of a cadre of soldiers. And every member is very important, exerting themselves to win the victory. This is the critical part. And so the best way to achieve unity in a church, even a local church, is to be engaged in a struggle to reach a common goal. If you and I are to walk worthy as believers, then we must stand firm. Also, if we're to walk worthy, we must be prepared to face opposition. Look at verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. 2 Timothy 3 says, In fact, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you bear a proper witness for Christ, as God intends you to do, there will be opposition. Uh, it will be the natural result of your witness for Christ. You may face it in the workplace. You may face it in the home. You may face it in school or in the classroom. You may face it all over the place. I read of a banker who was in charge of an influential branch of a particularly large bank, and a policy came about in the bank over a period of time that the vice presidents in charge of the various branches were to encourage business by entertaining very lavishly at the bank's expense. And so very important customers or potential customers were to be given rounds at nightclubs and shows and so on. And this, this banker, who happened to be a Christian, he was a believer, he personally felt that's not a proper atmosphere to carry on business. It ought to be more sober-minded. It ought to be more serious. And so he felt that banking was best done during banking hours in a very serious environment rather than over drinks and in entertainment. And under his leadership, that particular branch flourished, but his convictions irritated the management. And so there came a time when they would not take it any longer, and they put him on a leave of absence for two months. They they put someone else in his place, and two months later he was rehired, but he was rehired for another position much lower where he could not cause any trouble. That was persecution for his convictions. And so when persecution comes, how should we respond? It tells us in verse 28, we should not be frightened by the opposition. Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. Panic comes with surprise. The best way to avoid panic is to anticipate it. That if you say certain things, you engage in certain conversations, there's going to be a reaction. And so I need to prepare before that happens so that I don't panic. God has told us there would be opposition, so the time is to prepare for it now. Since I became the pastor here years ago, 15 or 20, a long time ago, 1994, I remember that much. I can't do the math on my feet. But I, I meet with a group of older pastors, most of them are older than I am, uh, each January. And I look up to these men, uh, and they have been saying all along, we have got to prepare our people for life in a post-Christian culture. We've got to be preparing our people for life in a post-Christian culture. 
Um, and you see it at hyperspeed, even the past 18 months especially. Uh, and so we need to be prepared. The questions being asked are somewhat different than they were even two years ago, five years ago. Um, and we should not be frightened by that. We do not need to be overcome by such opposition. In verse 29, it says that the very fact that there's the opposition is a mark of destruction on those who oppose us. It's a sign that we will be saved. Now, rather than, than having someone uh, misrepresent you or accuse you or, uh, or, or demean you for your commitment to Christ, uh, it should encourage us because it means that his grace has been seen in my life or in your life. Very interesting account in Acts chapter 5. Here we are just literally weeks after the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father. And here are those disciples. Now they're called apostles, which means one who is sent. And they're preaching the gospel. They're still in Jerusalem. And they are taken before the very court, the high court that had condemned Jesus. The very same men are on that court. And these, these men have been preaching about Jesus publicly. And so... They're told, stop, do not do that. They have them beaten. They have the apostles beaten. And you know what their response was? Then they, they let them go, but they, they beat them and warned them, do not preach anymore in the name of Jesus. Verse 41 of Acts 5 says, The apostles left the Sanhedrin, that's the high court, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Now, they were able to do that because, in a sense, they didn't take it personally. They knew it was directed at Christ. So they were encouraged that, yes, we suffered, but we were suffering for the name of Christ. Are you prepared for that kind of suffering? Are you preparing your children how to answer questions, basic questions? A friend of mine was in a restaurant the other day, and he talked to the waiter, and the waiter somehow or another in there engaged in conversation, and he said, found out this guy had gone to... Christian schools all of his life. Uh, the university attended and so forth. And he said, are you a Christian? They said, no, I don't believe any of it. And uh, my friend said to him, why not? What's the biggest issue that keeps you from believing? He said, genocide in the Old Testament. Now, that's a very common one today. Genocide in the Old Testament. Joshua and so forth, the conquest of the promised land. How could God direct his people to kill innocent people? That's the way it's usually posed. And there are very good answers to that. So my friend said to him, there are top-notch scholars that have researched that and studied it, and I would be glad to get some of that information into your hands if you are interested. And the fellow stared at him for a minute, and he said, nah, I'm not interested. And my friend knew that at that point. He said, that really isn't the issue. That's not the issue at all. Uh, and so we have to look for opportunities and be able to to give an account for the hope that's within us? Are we preparing our children, our grandchildren, for life in this post-Christian era? Let's move on, verse 29. If we're to walk worthy of the gospel, we must be prepared to receive the gift of suffering. Notice that the Philippians had been called not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for Christ's sake. How should we regard persecution and suffering? It says here, as a gift from God. The word gift or granted is derived from the same word, which is grace or favor. So it's in a sense God is giving us his mercy, his favor, by allowing us to suffer as we walk in a manner worthy of him. When Saul 
When Saul, before he was converted, or at the time of his conversion, God appears to him on the road, and he, he fell to the ground, it says in Acts 9, and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. In fact, Christ suffers with us when we suffer as we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Charles Simeon was an evangelical in England, the latter 1700s and early 1800s, a pastor, and he suffered greatly. And he said that maybe we can picture Jesus Christ approaching his heavenly Father and saying, Father, I want to ask the highest honor that can be given, the highest blessing on that particular individual. And the Father asked, what is it? What is this highest blessing you want me to bestow on that particular individual? And according to Charles Simeon in his mind, Jesus says, I want this person to be given the honor of suffering for me. That's exactly what's being said here in this passage. Um, and then in verse 30, he says, Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Remember, these words are not a passive observer. This is the Apostle Paul. He's in prison. He's not sitting at Starbucks on his iPad drinking the latest seasonal drink there while he uh, waxes eloquent about theology. No, he's in a Roman prison. He has lost his freedom, and yet he says, you're, you're going through exactly what you're seeing me go through. Um, and so he uses the word there, engaged in the same conflict. It's the word for struggle. It's the word for agony. Even as Christ struggled in the garden, the agony there when he, he, he bled drops of blood even as he prayed the night before he was crucified. As we face the enemy and depend on the Lord, he gives us all we need for the battle. The history of missions in China is an amazing thing. The gospel arrived in China through a Nestorian. That was a basically a heretical view, uh, around the 8th century, uh, a man named Elopin. And so essentially you have certain degrees of Roman Catholic missions in China leading up to 1807. And then in 1807, Robert Marson, who was a, a British young man, he, he went to work there. He wanted to be a missionary, but missionaries were not allowed. And they were frowned on by foreign countries who thought they just caused trouble for business. And so he, he got a job with the East India Company. He went to China. He learned Chinese. Some uh, Chinese were willing to teach him Mandarin, which they had to do in secret because there, you could be put to death for teaching a foreigner the language. He wrote an English dictionary. He began to translate the New Testament upon the back of the work of Robert Morrison, Hudson Taylor, and others that focused on the interior of China came along in the latter 1800s, and there you have the China Inland Mission, and you have this rich history of, of missions. But it was, it was quirky. They often dealt with the elite. They, they had, they, in many cases, they were given, they were looked on almost as governors of city, so there was a, a love-hatred toward these foreign missionaries. Uh, and then in 1900, that exploded when you had the Boxer Rebellion. Uh, boxer from the word for fist. It was a nationalistic group there, and they rose up rather quickly in the summer, in June of 1900, and they killed 188 missionaries. Some 78 were from China Inland Mission, the, one, the group with Hudson Taylor, including 26 women and children. And all that happened in less than a, a two-year period, and then, then you had uh, uh, various changes of power and so forth, and then missionaries continued to be allowed there later in the, up until 1949. And in 1949, all the 
the foreign missionaries were expelled. There was great concern that that might be the death blow to the church. By the way, in the Boxer Rebellion, you not only had 188 missionaries killed, you had 30,000 Chinese Christians who were also killed by these groups. In 1949, the missionaries are expelled. Doors begin to open up back in 1980. They go in, and what do they find? They find that the church is gone? No. Conservative estimates today of anywhere from 75 million to 175 million. It's hard to get the exact numbers because you have the national church that's recognized, the three-faced church, and then you have so many house churches and family churches. So the numbers are incredible. But even in a median number, it's more Christians there than in any other country on the planet. 1.3 billion people, a high number perhaps of 175 million that profess to be Christians. And so there's no doubt that when we hear a story like Hannah's, that goes back to probably it could be traced back by these British, Scottish, foreign missionaries that came and served there in the early 1900s and many, many died. I'm trying to make a decision. Those hamburgers will wait for about 10 more minutes, right? I've got to read you this. This book came out some years ago, By Their Blood, Christian Martyrs of the 20th Century. I want to read you one, one brief letter written by one of those missionaries an expectant mom, a young mom and her husband who were killed in the Boxer Rebellion. And just days before, 12 days before, she and her husband and her unborn child were murdered. Uh, on August the 3rd, she wrote this to her family, Lizzie Atwater. She said, Dear ones, I long for a sight of your dear faces, for I fear we shall not meet on earth. I am preparing for the end very quietly and calmly. The Lord is wonderfully near. He will not fail me. I was very restless and excited while there seemed a chance of life, but God has taken away that feeling, and now I just pray for grace to meet the terrible end bravely. The pain will soon be over, and oh, the sweetness of the welcome above. My little baby will go with me. I think God will give it to me in heaven, and my dear mother will be so glad to see us. I cannot imagine the Savior's welcome. Oh, that will compensate for all these days of suspense. Dear ones, live near to God. Cling less closely to earth. There is no other way by which we can receive that peace from God which passes understanding. I must keep calm and still these hours. I do not regret coming to China, but I am sorry I have done so little. My married life, two precious years, has been so very full of happiness. We will die together, my dear husband and I. I used to dread separation. If we escape now, it will be a miracle. I send you... Send my love to you all and the dear friends who remember me. And so 12 days later, she did depart this life, she and her family. And so we, we see this anticipation of heaven, and I want to close on that, begin to close on that last note. I wanted, as I read from, from chapter 3, and turn back over there, verses 20 and 21, just briefly. For our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. The return of Christ is mentioned in almost every one of the New Testament books. Paul called it the blessed hope. Peter calls it the living hope. Uh, most of us believers today, especially here, I would say among my friends, we don't think about heaven near enough. But you should because this is not our home. In Randy Alcorn's excellent book on heaven, 
He says, when I see ocean fish in an aquarium, I enjoy watching them, but I feel as though something is wrong. They don't belong there. It's not their home. The fish weren't made for that little glass box. They were made for a great ocean. I suppose the fish don't know any better, but I wonder if their instincts tell them that their true home is elsewhere. I know our instincts tell us that this fallen world is not our home. We were made for someplace better, and the Bible repeatedly confirms this. What will happen when he returns? Verse 21, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious bodies. What's lowly about our bodies? We may describe our bodies with many terms, but we probably don't use the word lowly. You go to the doctor, how are you feeling? I'm feeling kind of lowly. What does that mean? Well, they're subject to sin. They're subject to disease. They're subject to rapid aging. They're subject to injury. Our bodies are so fragile, it's scary. Um, but they will be transformed. They will be transformed by Christ to be like his glorious body. John Wayne, when he was acting, he was probably, face is probably known more than any other actors around the world. He did an interview with Barbara Walters when he was 71 years old. He said, it's kind of irritating to see that I was a good-looking 40-year-old, and suddenly I can look over and I see this 71-year-old. He said, I'm not squawking. I just want to be around for a long time. It ain't going to happen, John. And it didn't, and it won't for any of us. We better be prepared. Five months before he died, C.S. Lewis wrote to a woman who was fearing her own death, which was imminent. And Lewis said, can you not see death as a friend and deliverer? What is there to be afraid of? Your sins are confessed. Has this world been so kind to you that you should leave with regret? There are better things ahead than any we leave behind. This is not being suicidal. Sometimes unbelievers hear this and it sounds like Christians are, are being su suicidal. That's not it at all. It's living with the anticipation that God has prepared something far better than anything we can experience and enjoy here in this life. If we could just glance into heaven, let's say for just a moment, if I could perform something, I'm saying there's a curtain behind me, and it's going to open up, and it's going to open up for five seconds, and you're going to get a glimpse into heaven right now. If those curtains could open up, and it was to shut, our lives would never be the same. Robert Rayburn put it this way, You know and I know that if we could for just a moment or two look into heaven, and see the life that people live there, and behold the glory of God, and feel its warmth, and see the Lord Christ standing there, and take in the happiness and the perfection of that place, and everyone in that place, we would lose all interest in what we have here and can acquire here, and we would all become generous to a fault, giving away to others in a wild desire something to be more worthy of the place where we are going. It would change us. That anticipation, that certainty. And that's what Paul is saying it should. We should think about it often. The more heaven is a reality to us, the more motivation you will have to live in a manner worthy of Christ. Now I'm truly closing. Okay, I was kidding a minute ago. Now I am. Here's a young woman full of fear and worry that she'll never marry. You think the night before her wedding, she's full of fear and worry? Of course not. All that's gone. Here's a traveler, homesick. He's been away for months. Now he's inside of the destination. Do you think he's still discouraged? The destination, he picks up the pace. He sees it. Here's a prisoner that cries himself to sleep and despair. He's been in prison for years. And now he's getting out the next day. 
Think he has a hard time sleeping that night because of discouragement? No, because of the excitement. He could care less how comfortable the bed is and how the food is. He knows he's leaving the next day. Does a man continue to pinch pennies for fear of not being able to make ends meet once he has received news that tomorrow he will receive a large inheritance that's a fortune? No, he doesn't care anymore. That's Paul's argument. All those things are Paul's argument that as we think about, especially when we suffer, especially when we face opposition, if we think about the next life as Paul was doing, then it gives us motivation. So want motivation to walk in a manner worthy of Christ? Think often of heaven. I'm going to go back to the paragraph I started with. If you're confused or overwhelmed by the message of the Bible, you can reduce it down to two simple statements. First, believe in the Lord Jesus and receive the gift of forgiveness of sins. Second, to those who have believed, to those who have received forgiveness, then live a life worthy of the gospel. Two statements always in that order. You cannot live a life worthy of the gospel until you have believed the message about Jesus and been saved by it. We live from life, not to life. We live from the life we've received, not living to trying to earn the life. Our life for God is a gift returned for his far greater gift given to us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have received so much. And to whom much is given, much is required. We pray you would make us faithful. We pray that each of us here would understand the message of Christ, that he died in the place of others, that on the cross you put our sin on him and punished him in our place, that through that I can now have life with you. And then give us motivation to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, especially for those of us facing opposition, even persecution now, perhaps from within a marriage, from within a family, in the workplace, as fellow students, a roommate in a dorm, or wherever it may be. Help us to count it a privilege to suffer for the name of Christ like those early apostles. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.